Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. A few years back, I happened to be in the audience at the Jonathan Club in downtown Los Angeles for the presentation of the Howard Hughes Award. Tom Hanks spoke at some length about the man of the hour. It was a bit like the old To Tell the Truth television show. Would the real Jim Lovell please stand up? Hanks regaled the crowd with stories about how he first met Lovell in preparation for the 1995 Ron Howard film, Apollo 13. It seems the studio brass who were responsible for ensuring the film got a little queasy when they learned that the aging astronaut planned to fly the Hollywood icon in his little plane. The tense conversations between California and Texas continued for several days. It mattered not that Lovell had been one of the first three men to see the moon up close on Apollo 8 that his cool-headed leadership in the darkness of distant space on Apollo 13 had become an object lesson in overcoming adversity. At that moment, he was just another actuarial risk, which needed to be mitigated. Lowell was more amused than insulted, because that's the kind of guy he is. He finally told the executive, Look, don't worry about it. His best insurance policy is sitting in the pilot's seat. And so Hanks happily went up in the little plane, getting a feel of flight with the real hero of Apollo 8 and Apollo 13. He even gave Hanks the controls for a few moments as they soared high above South Texas. I don't think they told the studio executives about that. Sometimes art imitates life. And sometimes life intimidates art. Let's fly to the moon with Jim Lovell. Jim, it's great to have you with us today. When you were five years old, your father died in a car wreck. Obviously, this must have been very traumatic. How do you think this tragedy shaped your life? Well, I was pretty young when that happened. And so, yes, it did, uh, it did affect me. Uh, but what it did was it essentially put uh, my mother and I back in sort of a, a, like a poverty zone. 
we didn't have much money. She was a receptionist, and uh, and, uh, and that was it. My mother and I lived in a one-room apartment, as a matter of fact. It was, you know, really, really struggling. And then, then I spent a couple of years with my aunt and uncle, uh, and uh, and fortunately that helped me out too because uh, my cousin was a Boy Scout. And that got me interested in the scouting program. I think uh, the most important thing I learned was to build up my confidence in what I could do. I uh, tried to achieve, uh, you know, the various ranks, and I got the various merit badges. Uh, I, and I learned to work with other people, um, you know, to be part of a team. As uh, I was in high school, looking, going uh, towards graduation, things looked pretty bleak because I didn't have any money to go to college. And, uh, and so I didn't know what was really going to happen. Very fortunately, uh, I had, well, first of all, I applied for the Naval Academy, and I didn't make it at that time. I was, I think, uh, uh, third alternate or something like that. And so uh, then I uh, uh, looked at a program that suddenly blossomed. Uh, it seems that the Navy was losing more naval aviators than they intended to after World War II. And so I, an admiral by the name of Holloway, who was uh, head of the uh, Bureau of uh, uh, up in Washington, uh, uh, had an idea about taking high school seniors, and if they so desired, they could uh, they would train them as naval aviators. First of all, send them through two years of college, then get them through all through flight training, and about six months at sea as young uh, midshipmen. And then if everything worked okay, they'd send them to their last two years of college. So this, to me, was the most great, uh, you know, incident that ever occurred. I couldn't believe my luck, and I attended that. And uh, I got as far as uh, going through my, after my two years of college at Wisconsin, I went down to Pensacola to start my flight training. But uh, during when I was at Wisconsin, my mother uh, said, why don't you try for the Naval Academy again? Because you remember when these uh, other government programs suddenly, you know, stop and they don't have any more requirements. And so I did. Uh, I was first on it until I uh, got down to start flying. And uh, suddenly I got a notice from the Navy saying, if you still want to go to the Academy, then report to Annapolis immediately. So I did. And there I got my four years of college, and then I went back into flying. How did you first become interested in aviation? What was it about flight that fascinated you? Well, I got interested in aviation because my uncle was a Naval Academy graduate way back in 1913, and he became the 58th Naval Aviator. So when he would come to visit us, he would uh, fill me up with uh, tales of uh, his flying and on aircraft carriers and things like that. So I got an interest there. But about my junior year in the uh, high school, I had uh, uh, learned a lot about the, what the Germans were doing. Of course, this was the war years. And finally, we were learning about their, their rocketry and their V-2. I suddenly became fascinated in rocketry and space flight. I had read at, the, at high school a, a little pamphlet uh, written by a, a fellow by the name of Robert Goddard. Uh, way back in 1913, about the ability of liquid fuel rockets to go to great heights. And that impressed me so much that besides applying for the Naval Academy at that time, I applied, uh, I wrote a letter to the American Rocket Society and saying, look, at, 
Uh, I'm graduating soon, and I'd like to get into rocket technology. Uh, do you have any advice? And I received a very nice letter back from them, but in the last paragraph said, get yourself a good education. We suggest MIT or Caltech. And of course, I couldn't afford any of that. You learned early on how to operate in heavy pressure, which was going to come in handy. One night, when you were a young naval aviator in the Pacific, when you were flying Banshee fighters, you faced an emergency situation over the Sea of Japan. Well, that to be a fairly decent night, and uh, we were off the Sea of Japan, and we hadn't done any night flying. I was a night fighter pilot. Uh, we, uh, our, our little team consisted of four airplanes, five pilots, and about 30 enlisted. And one night, uh, after not flying for a while, we were orbiting, or not, or we're cruising off the Sea of Japan, and uh, uh, our, and uh, the uh, skippers suddenly wanted to have a night cap, you know, circulating the uh, the ships, and so we were ordered to uh, to go up and do that. And uh, I was the first plane off. Then the three others followed me. Actually, actually, the last airplane was kept on the deck because the weather was getting bad. And uh, I, uh, uh, as I came around, I lost the carrier. Uh, I had the wrong frequency t- turned in, and, and so uh, I, I went. I, I had built on the way over from uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, a uh, lighting system in my in my suit so that I could read the uh, my knee pad. And I turned it, went to turn it on. I was looking to see if I had the wrong frequency. And I shorted out the, all the uh, instruments, uh, the instrument panel. In other words, inside the cockpit was completely dark. And I was only at 1,500 feet in a plane in a jet, which <laughs> these days you would never want to do. And... Uh, and so I was in, a, in trouble of really what to do. I, I called the carrier back to see if they had me on, on the radar, and they said no. The fact the radar wasn't working at that time, and I had a choice whether to continue on to, to land in the, in China someplace, uh, or or see if I could turn around to find the ship. And of course, the weather was getting bad. It was dark. There was no moon, and I finally turned it around, found the uh, a, look, a little bit of a, a light in the uh, ocean. Uh, it was a long stream of sort of greenish light, and it was uh, the algae being turned up by the screws of the carrier and left a long line. And so, very fortunately, I was able to follow that to get back to the ship. Let's set the scene here. In 1958, in the wake of Sputnik, NASA was formed. Pretty soon, President Kennedy would set us on a course for the moon. And you wanted to be an astronaut. You wanted it bad. How in the world did you flunk your physical? The thing is, 1958, NASA was looking to find out, make, uh, you know, the uh, live flights. People would go into space. But what kind of person would be the best? And there are several suggestions, like stuntmen from the movies or double amputees because that would save the weight of, of not having to have legs on if the rockets themselves were underpowered. But uh, it was President Eisenhower that suggested uh, that NASA take test pilots. And, uh, and of course, I was in the program right now, so I applied. And I was one of the 32 people who finally ended up uh, being selected to take physicals for the Mercury program uh, up at Albuquerque. And uh, 
I went out there. I was the only guy to flunk the physical of the 32. And of course, the others, the, the, out of that 32, the seven were that were selected go. I had what was known at that time as a high bill of room, and I never knew what it was. I guess it was a pink, pink uh, uh, something in my blood. But anyway, it didn't affect my flying or anything like that. And I went home kind of disappointed. You must have been devastated. Did you assume that you had lost your only chance to be an astronaut? Well, that's that was the case. You know, I said to myself, I said, you know, I was interested in rockets, and I read all about them. I studied them. I, uh, and I, in fact, I read other books on rocket technology, especially the one on the Germans after the war. Uh, knew all about Bob Braun by those times. And some of those guys that were selected, you know, didn't know uh, any of that. Eventually, you got another opportunity. How did that happen? About that time, of course, the program was really building up, and they were looking now at the Gemini program, and, of course, going to the moon on Apollo. But they had to have the Gemini program, and they needed more astronauts. And so uh, they asked the Navy uh, to, again, make the selection. Well, the Navy never knew that I had flunked the physical at NASA, and of course I never told any of the Navy doctors because I kept flying all this time. And uh, so uh, the uh, the Navy suggested, or uh, put my name back in for a second group. And by gosh, NASA said, okay. So I went back to, uh, to go for a second selection, and I went to um, San Antonio at that time, and the Air Force doctors were doing the physicals then. And I don't think they knew what a Billy Rubin was. So anyway, <laughs> I passed with Bill Powell and got selected for the second group. What an odd footnote to your story. We've all seen the, the rigorous testing portrayed in The Right Stuff. How tough was the process? Well, the one in Albuquerque, which was done by a civilian group that were uh, most of famous and, and instrumental in aviation-type medicine, that was very thorough, really, really very thorough. And the and the movie, uh, uh, I think that uh, the right stuff shows it pretty well. Uh, the next physical was more or less uh, uh, regular for just for regular uh, pilots or aviation people. It wasn't that bad. We deal on this podcast with the importance of risk. In your case, you were called upon to risk your life on a regular basis in order to chase your dream. Was this something you allowed yourself to think about? Not really. Don't forget that uh, I had gone into test pilot work and was testing airplanes. I had several incidents where uh, things were a little uh, touch and go. Uh, and, uh, and so this was an extension of my career, really. You know, just like anything in, uh, in any type of a career, you want to keep on doing more and more work and getting more and more uh, experienced of what you were doing, and then suddenly, you know, going into space was uh, an extension of my test uh, pilot work. December 4, 1965, was a, a big day for you, your first mission, Gemini 7. What were your initial impressions of space? Well, Gemini 7 was uh, the first flight, and it was, it was a two-week mission. We had to figure out uh, whether people would be could live for two weeks in zero gravity, a lot of the doctors felt that uh, because we had evolved under gravity, that something that the, the body had to have gravity to uh, take care of itself. I mean, for instance, uh, blood flow of, uh, or 
things of this nature. But it turns out after the two weeks of uh, flying zero gravity, that, that was not required, that uh, you could last very nicely in two weeks. Uh, and of course, nowadays, we, we have people up over a year. But uh, it does have effects. It slows down the heart. Uh, it, 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 it's very bad on the muscles. Uh, they get no uh, no uh, exercise at all unless they have exercise equipment into the spacecraft, and they have to use that continuously. Continuously, so uh, uh, those programs were very important uh, leading up to going to the moon. January 1967, tragedy strikes the program. Three of your colleagues died on the ground in the Apollo One fire. How did that? affect you and the other astronauts? Well, it was pretty bad. Uh, uh, we realized now that we had made a basic mistake of uh, of, uh, of testing uh, with pure oxygen at sea level, because pure oxygen at sea level is about 15 pounds per square inch, and, you know, anything burns in pure oxygen. And the, uh, the first Apollo really had problems with it. And, uh, and it woke up everybody as to, first of all, the nature of, of our program, that it is dangerous, not just in space, but right on the ground itself. And also that we have to really look at some of the problems that, that, that uh, like, like oxygen. So we finally had a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen to begin with. And then once we're, you know, with a, a low low pressure of around 5 point PSI, then you can start using pure oxygen, and uh, that's exactly what happened. Now, many people probably don't realize that Apollo 8 originally had a different mission. Apollo 8 was going to uh, test the lunar module for the first time. Uh, we were going to go up uh, in Earth orbit, and then I spent, I think, about eight or ten days uh, with the lunar orbit uh, or lunar module. And, uh, separating it from the command module and doing various testings and bringing it back, and then finally abandoning the command module or the lunar module, and we are going to go up to about 4,000 miles and then come back to the Earth at a high speed to find out how that would work. And of course, the reason why the whole thing was changed was that uh, the manufacturer of the uh, lunar module, uh, uh, Grumman, uh, just told NASA that uh, we will never be able to deliver a lunar module by the end of 1968. The earliest would be 69. And uh, consequently, uh, uh, Apollo 8 didn't have a, a mission. And it was George Lowe, who was the ethical director at that time of, uh, of NASA, had the brilliant idea that if Gemini or if Apollo 7, which was going to be just a 14-day Earth orbital flight on the command and service module only. That proved out to be good. Everything worked fine. And everything. Why not change Apollo 8's command and service module? Just send it all the way to the moon, and we can test out the navigation, the communications, look for suitable landing spots, uh, and uh, and also in the back of our minds was we wanted to beat the Russians because we had. Uh, intelligence information that the Russians were going to try to put people around the moon about that same time. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. 
for listeners who weren't alive in 1968, it's it's difficult to understand um, how sad that year was. It was an awful year. Um, and yet, as the year came to a close, Apollo 8 flew off into the dark void of space, headed for the moon. It was a, a, a demonstration of American ambition and daring. And we needed that. Uh, you got close enough to see it and feel it. What do you remember about that historic trip? Well, we went into orbit uh, around the moon. We orbited at 60, 60 nautical miles and, uh, to uh, re- look at that. And, of course, we, uh, we, we orbited the moon in the dark side. In other words, we, we were out to the... It's really the apogee of a long elliptical orbit between the Earth and the moon. But when we uh, fired our engines to slow down, uh, and we got captured by the moon's gravity, we were on the dark side. So even though we knew that we were in orbit, we didn't see the moon at all until after we started to move around. And finally, uh, when we started to get to where there was some shards of uh, sunlight coming on the peaks of the far side craters, uh, we all looked down there, and there we saw from the far side of the moon, which, of course, as we all know, we never see the far side from the Earth. Uh, it was quite spectacular, uh, and of course, as we orbited around, finally we got to where the uh, the Earth came uh, out of the horizon, and we all, we all everybody's seen that famous uh, Earthrise picture that uh, Andrews made. Uh, but it, it dawned on me that we were 240,000 miles away, and and the Earth. I could put it behind my thumb as I put it up. Everything I ever knew, oceans or deserts or you know continents, everything is behind my thumb. And I realized that you know, how insignificant I really was with respect to my existence here in space. Let's paint the picture. You, Frank Borman, and Bill Anders were the first three humans ever to have that view. It must have been incredibly emotional. How did you process the experience? Well, it's amazing. People often ask that question. And the thing is, at the time that we're doing it, we're, is, uh, we're following a, a script, so to speak, you know, taking pictures, looking at that, checking out the orbiting uh, uh, distance, uh, looking for suitable landing spots. Uh, and we don't I don't think a crew on Apollo 8 realized what really they were doing until after the flight was over with and they began to think about where they've been. I mean, this was an also Christmas Eve that we orbited the moon. Now, you can imagine that. We we rode, uh, we uh, uh, read Genesis uh, the first, you know, uh, from the lunar orbit. That was a memorable moment. Why did you choose to read from the Bible? We were thinking among ourselves what to say, because we realized that orbiting the moon on Christmas Eve, which we had determined this was going to happen before we took off, uh, uh, we didn't know exactly what to do. I mean, changing the words to the night before Christmas or something like that didn't seem to be appropriate. And uh, I think it was Frank Borman that finally uh, got the idea of, uh, to, uh, uh, to to do that, and uh, uh, which was, uh, he got it from a newspaper guy, and the newspaper guy got it from his wife. <laughs> so that's how that, because 
we, we, we were trying to figure out what's appropriate, and we didn't know. And NASA guy said, I know a newspaper guy. Let me ask him. And so uh, uh, that occurred. And uh, this fellow was working late in the evening when his wife came down and said, what are you doing? And he told her what his project was. And she said, well, that's simple. The first uh, 10 verses of Genesis. It's the natural. It's there up there for the first time. And, uh, and so that's what was passed down, and that's what we uh, ended up doing. By the time you prepared to head for the moon uh, on Apollo 13 in April 1970, the U.S. had already mounted two successful lunar landings. And frankly, a lot of people were getting bored with the space program. Did that mindset bother you? Oh, yeah. They, they, the uh, interest in the Apollo to the moon died uh, tremendously after Apollo 11. Uh, and, and by the time 13 flew, there were already five flights to the moon, uh, or this was the fifth flight to the moon. And uh, so the interest uh, uh, it was not really not there with the American public. As a matter of fact, I think uh, uh, one of the newspapers, I think it was the New York Times, had a, a, the, the launch of Apollo 13 was on page 28 or something like that. And uh, people just, uh, you know, didn't pay that much attention. Uh, I did a, a, a TV program while I was, before the accident occurred uh, on the way to the moon. And uh, uh, the program was sent down to NASA, the, uh, the control center. They have fed it out to three major networks. None of them carried it. Uh, it was not that interested anymore until, until the explosion. The command module was dying, no oxygen, no electrical power. Uh, the explosion was caused uh, caused by uh, a uh, fire in the one of the oxygen tanks. And uh, that story in itself is uh, one of uh, uh, very interesting. It started way back uh, in the manufacturer of the of the spacecraft and the uh, uh, delinquent uh, 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 part of one of the manufacturers not to replace these circuit breakers uh, in the oxygen tanks with the proper size, which allowed uh, the uh, uh, tank to become damaged during uh, one of the tests, which was undetected. And uh, that uh, damage then resulted in an explosion some 200,000 miles out two days later on, on April 13th. You had to react very quickly if you were going to have any chance to get home? First of all, we had to go to the lunar module. The command module, of course, was completely dead. And we had to get back out of a proper course back to the Earth. We were on a long elliptical orbit that would go out to the moon, and this orbit then would take us back on the return leg back to the Earth, but because we had changed the orbit slightly, we would never get back safely to the Earth, we had missed the Earth by about 5,000 miles. So we had to get back on what was called a free return orbit. And uh, we had to, uh, uh, that was the first thing we had to do. And, and so the uh, mission control figured out the procedures and we got in the lunar module to use it now. Um, and it's, uh, its engine and its uh, uh, controllability. And so I started it up and they gave me the, the uh, attitude to move to, to get back on the free return orbit using the lunar module engine. 
And then I learned something that I took with me into business that, you know, always expect the unexpected because the lunar module was only uh, uh, had the ability to, to maneuver by itself and never had the command service module attached to it. And of course, the command module was the only vehicle that had this heat shield, so we had to bring it all home. And the center of gravity was not at the center of the lunar module, so to make sure that we could do the correct maneuvers, but it was way out of left field someplace. And it's, it was like uh, in an automobile, if, uh, if you wanted to turn left, you had to, had to turn the steering wheel right. And so it took me some time to relearn the whole controllability to, uh, to get to the proper attitudes. But, you know, when you're in trouble, you'd be surprised how quickly you learn. It was the carbon dioxide that was building up into the lunar module because there was three people in the lunar module. It was designed for 42. There was only one canister in the lunar module environmental system, so of a cylindrical canister that removed the carbon dioxide, and it was becoming saturated. And consequently, carbon dioxide was building up. Carbon dioxide is poisonous in high quantities. Now, in the dead command module, we had plenty of canisters to remove carbon dioxide, but they were square. You couldn't put a square canister into a round hole in a lunar module environmental system, which was, in, in my later thinking, the biggest mistake because the manufacturer manufactured both environmental systems for the command module and the lunar module. Why they didn't use the same canister, I'll never know. But anyway, so we had to figure out some way of removing the carbon dioxide with a square canister, and that was done by uh, the mission control people, the crew systems division, using a tape, plastic, a piece of cardboard, and an old sock. They put that together and were able to jury-rig a square canister into the lunar module system to remove the carbon dioxide. We turned off all the electrical systems. We were short of electrical power and, and uh, very short, so we turned everything down, and the temperature kept dropping all the time. Uh, it got down to about oh, 33 degrees Fahrenheit, I think. Uh, and uh, So uh, we did want to put on our pressure suits because the interior of that was sort of rubberized and we were sweating inside and then we'd be frozen on the outside. So we just had, we just left uh, our inflate suits on. Jim, what was it? What was it in your training that prepared you for this emergency? Well, I kind of think a lot of my training at Test, uh, test pilot uh, is, is this, the center. After I finished school, I, of course, I did uh, three years of testing various airplanes, and I had several uh, very uh, you know, uh, you know, dangerous positions during that time, but uh, I, I sort of learned uh, you know, to uh, figure out how to, how to get out of things. The odds were really stacked against you. Did you think about the fact that you might not make it home. Uh, no, uh, not not really. I, uh, you you got to have a positive attitude all the way. That's the most important thing. You always, when one crisis occurs, you try to figure out how to get out of that crisis. You have to keep going. I, I knew the odds were very slim in the beginning. I uh, felt that if we never got home, we would uh, continue to broadcast as long as we could. Uh, and uh, that would be it. But I, uh, that was in the back of my mind. That was the, the real thing was, uh, what do we have to do now to assure our success? What else is going wrong? Can we anticipate anything in the future? 
Well, actually, I think that the uh, uh, the explosion of Apollo 13 was the best thing that could have happened to NASA. As I mentioned before, everybody was getting very complacent, and, and yet, uh, uh, you know, what it showed was that true leadership, true teamwork, good teamwork, and a good sense of initiative turned uh, an almost uh, uh, failure, complete failure, into a successful recovery. What did you learn about yourself out of that experience? I think unconsciously, I learned that. Uh, I, there was no sense panicking. We didn't panic. You know, amazingly so. A lot of people say, well, <laughs> did you panic after this thing? Well, uh, I, we could have panicked, but uh, after 10 minutes, we were still at the same place where we were before. So wife, take that aside and see what we could do to get home. You had already announced that Apollo 13 would be your last flight, but you didn't get to land on the moon. So did you ever regret that decision to retire? When I came back, yes, I did. This was to be my my uh, last flight, and probably I was going to retire from NASA at that time. Uh, and I figured I could retire better than having a, a walk on the moon. And when I first uh, uh, did not, I was sort of disappointed, and uh, and, and actually, so. Uh, NASA at first wanted to forget about it uh, instead of looking at really what it meant to them. Uh, the, uh, the achievement that was done by Mission Control working with the space people uh, or the, you know, the, the crew that uh, they wanted to bury it. So they, they took uh, uh, the command module after it was uh, recovered, of course, and sent back to the factory to look at what was wrong and figure out the problem. And, well, that, uh, the command module was put into a, an obscure type of uh, uh, you know, uh, room or I uh, answer building and it left uh, by itself. And it wasn't until France had asked the Smithsonian, of course, which owns all the spacecraft, uh, do you have something that we could put in our museum at our little airfield at Lombardier near Paris? And that's where Lindbergh landed, you know, to uh, show about the space program. And you know, suddenly NASA got an idea. They said, oh, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll export, exile this spacecraft and get it out of this country. Because after all, that was a failure and we live on success. And so that's exactly what happened. Apollo 13 went to Leberger, uh and was there. Uh, several years after that, I got a letter from a classmate of mine who he said, do you know where your spacecraft is? And I found out it was Lamberger. And so a few years after I got that letter, my wife and I had to be in Paris. We went out to the airport, and there it was, all by itself. Uh, and the dust of it was full of dust. And there was only one sign on it that gave the name of the crew and nothing else. In fact, it was still sitting on the trolley, uh, the trolley that they had rolled in on. And uh, then... When the movie came out, when the movie came out, the people who were in France said, oh, yes, that spacecraft is over here. So they all started to go look at it. And then NASA was embarrassed. Uh, and then they had given it up to France for all these years. And so they requested it back. And, of course, they owed it. And so with the Smithsonian and the little... Uh, museum at uh, uh, 
in uh, Kansas, they did. Uh, uh, they got it back, uh, and uh, then everybody, you know, the movie really changed the whole thing because in reality, it was a great success of NASA to get that spacecraft back, and they took it as the wrong thing, like thinking that they should forget about it. How did the movie change your life? Well, I don't think the movie changed our lives, uh, my wife and I's lives, any more than we were very happy the movie was done. Uh, and it probably gave us a lot more exposure uh, than it would have otherwise. But I think that uh, the, the movie's great uh, uh, contribution to our program was the, uh, the advent of what people could do to overcome adversity. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. What would you want people to, to take away from your harrowing experience, from your successful failure? Well, I think if people uh, took to the problems that they had, like we did in ours, that you're, you're always assessed sometimes with problems of, what, of, of some sort. Yet sit back and figure out the best way of overcoming that problem. Uh, don't don't uh, just like I say. Don't panic at the time. But uh, you have a problem. Now, what can you do to get out of that problem? Thanks to Lane McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life, and audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.